It's time for another Dirty Debrief, where I read listener feedback on the last episode and talk about podcast craft stuff and any other follow-up. I'll start with some comments about scene four, and then the changes from the screenplay. We're going to talk about bad boys, bad boys, and then end with some podcast stuff. So we met Johnny, last scene, aka Prince of the City, and I have a few listener comments. Nicole Zuckerman, who is a dancer, sent me a great email about a bunch of things we'll get into in later scenes, but she had this simple take on the pickle line, which she sent to me before I published the episode. Why don't you put your pickle on everybody's plate and leave the hard stuff to me is arguably one of the great quotes of the movie, turning on its head the expectation that the Yale-Harvard-educated staff does the more challenging work. And that is a nice little summary of what that line is doing. Obviously, uh, myself, Isabeau and Morgan got a little caught up in trying to figure out if pickle means dick, but we did eventually get into the emotional labor that Johnny has to perform for the abandoned housewives like Vivian. There is this expectation that he will be available for emotional, physical, and sometimes it seems sexual duties that are certainly not placed to the same extent on Robbie, even though Robbie gets treated as higher status at Kellerman's. Why Patsy on Instagram said, the one other part of the class subtext you didn't mention is that the waiters aren't just college boys, they are Jewish boys. And there's a clear differentiation between the upstairs Jewish staff that's allowed to socialize with the guests who are all Jewish and the genteel other staff who aren't. It's true, we did not talk about religious status at all in the scene. And in the screenplay, both Johnny and Billy are described as Italian. The guy who makes the joke about ass in the woods is described as a wiry Hispanic kid, which I know those are not religions, but as I've mentioned before, in the screenplay in scene two, Billy tells Baby a joke about a rabbi and after she laughs, he says, I'm training to be a borscht belt comedian. It's not easy. I'm Italian. Presumably there are some Italian immigrants that are Jewish, but the assumption here is that he would be Catholic. And that does come up again explicitly in the original screenplay when they talk about the Bible. I'll bring it up when we get to that part. But as for the film, as I've said before, I did not know for a very, very long time that there were differences in religious status. And next scene, we'll talk a lot more about how these resorts were used as opportunities for matchmaking and also matchmaking in general in Jewish communities. One more note I wanted to share is from Lauren Passell, who writes podcast The Newsletter, which I'll link to in the show notes. This newsletter is weekly and it has an incredible amount of podcast recommendations. And Lauren sent me a nice little thoughtful note about Johnny's sunglasses. Oh, I always thought Johnny was wearing sunglasses because we were to understand that he had just blown in from somewhere exciting, that he too was like the wind. He was someone who would never settle for a job, a girl, a wanderer. She's like the wind Through my dream She rides the night Next to me Some more changes from the screenplay. In the original screenplay, right after the Hellsmans pull up to Kellerman's, we cut to a bedroom 
and Wild Thing is playing on a record player. No, 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 no. You make my... It's such a tempting song to sing. And Johnny is there. It's Johnny playing the record and he's looking out the window while Vivian, who is described as a good-looking woman in her early 40s, rises as if from bed, plants a kiss on his bare shoulder, turns to dress. Vivian says, Bye, love. I'm late for class. And Johnny continues looking out the window. And the action line says, there's an outsider's irony in his expression as he surveys the scene. We joked in the episode that Patrick Swayze could take a note with the old Prince of the City description, but even he, I think, would struggle to nail an intro scene where he has no dialogue and merely an expression of outsider irony. The nuance of this kind of scene could maybe work in a novel, but not this movie. I'm very glad they cut it. Then in the screenplay, we get the Hausmans getting out of the car, the Coral Shoes conversation, then the dining room scene. So all of this originally happens before the gazebo dancing. And the writing in the dining room scene is very similar to how it shows on screen after Kellerman yells at Johnny to keep your hands off. The action line says, this is clearly a piece of class separation. Unlike the outsider's irony line, this would be strange to read in a novel. Like imagine the scene in Harry Potter when he finds the mirror of Erised, which we later find out is reverse for desire. Or do we find that out? Or we just have learned that? Anyways, but it basically shows you what you most desire in the mirror. And, and for him, it was being surrounded by his parents. And he starts to visit the mirror frequently and spending hours there. And like, imagine after a scene like that, the book would have said, this is clearly a lonely boy. I'm sure there's still some screenwriters who feel that a line like, this is clearly a piece of class separation is also inappropriate for a screenplay because if the writing is good enough, the dialogue and action should convey the message you're trying to get across. After all, the viewers, that's all they're gonna get, right? But personally, I think something like this, where this is a very specific setting that probably only Eleanor Bergstein is familiar with in terms of people working on the film, makes total sense to me for her to underscore the class tension as the focal point of this scene, as it's going to be so foundational to the rest of the story. In the screenplay, the crass comment is, it's the same in all these places, a little head in the woods maybe, but no conversation. The film version, of course, says some ass in the woods. I can't remember where I saw this, but I'm pretty sure the film line was 80 yard over, which means that they re-recorded the dialogue at a later point and then smushed it on top of the original video recording. Because if you look at Rodriguez delivering the line, it does look slightly off. Like maybe he did say head originally. It's also possible I've just watched it too many times. <laughs> I've seen this a few times in screenplays where the original line is more vulgar than what ends up in the film, though ass and head seem equally vulgar to me. I don't know if head is too descriptive of a specific sexual act. In any case, I probably don't need to spend more time on that. One little difference in the dialogue is that Johnny doesn't call Robbie college boy. He says, put your pickle on everybody's plate crew cut and leave the hard stuff to me. I guess this job is doing similar work to College Boy. A crew cut is like a trim, proper haircut for, you know, losers who conform. I mean, depending on your era, of course. It's a military haircut. One just 
silly reason I think this was good to change is crew cut is kind of hard to spit out in a way that's understandable. Like college boy sounds a lot better than crew cut. And um, just a regional note here about the term college boy. In particular, like used as an insult towards someone who's perceived as privileged and being born with a silver spoon in their mouth. Is that what that term is? I guess I could look it up. Okay, yeah, it is in your mouth rather than in your head or your ass. Anyways, this insult wouldn't really make sense in Canada because we say university, not college. When you say college, that means community college. Though I feel like enough of us are enmeshed in American TV to understand, obviously, the connotation of what college boy means. But also I was chatting with my friend Matt about this, and he reminded me that it would have been a lot more rare even for middle-class families to send their kids to college slash university in this era. Not to mention that Robbie goes to Yale, which is one of the most expensive universities. By no means are universities cheap here. I still have student debt to pay off, but they're a lot less money than in the U.S. And in particular for millennials, it would be pretty rare, I think, for someone to assume that because you went to university, you came from a rich family. Feel free to write me if you think that's not the case here in Canada. So it's just not as much of a clear class marker here. But now, if you went to a private high school... That was definitely unusual enough to make assumptions about. And actually, I had this recently because I went on a date a few months ago. Both of us were from Toronto. And so we did the whole like, where did you go to high school thing? She said the name of school I hadn't heard of. And usually when that happens, it's a private school. And then I was like, oh, yeah, what is that? And she's like, oh, yeah, it's this private school. And then maybe her reacting to a flash of judgment in my eyes, she quickly followed up with, oh, like I was a scholarship kid. So, you know, it was just me and a bunch of rich kids. And like, honestly, I can't deny, like she very well could have been picking up on some kind of look in my face. Matt also reminded me of the term preppy, which is not quite the same thing as college boy in this context. But that was such a popular word in the 90s. Like, so... Preppy as in prep school, as in you attend or want to be associated with prep or private school culture, like wearing polo shirts tucked into khakis kind of thing. Me being a kid in the 90s, there would have, and like none of us knowing people who went to private school, it'd be a lot more like, oh, like Christopher has a crush on you. And then someone being like, I don't really like preppies. I'm more into skaters. Let's do a brief comparison of Johnny's introduction in the film to other bad boy characters. First of all, of course, what is a bad boy? What do you think about when you hear that? I feel like probably depending on your generation, there might be a specific character. The most helpful definition I found was simply a person who flouts convention. Merriam-Webster online dictionary literally says person, In other words, a bad boy could be any gender. And I like flouts convention because it's 
broad enough that it challenges the idea that bad boys have to be doing literal criminal activity or just being general shitheads. Conventions is a neutral term because it's just the accepted ways of how society is conducted in a certain time and place. There are many things that were conventional in the past that we would find immoral now and possibly vice versa. So let's take a couple other bad boy characters from around the same time and see how they flout convention. The first one I want to talk about is The Breakfast Club, which is a famous and beloved 1985 film. It has this really brilliant opening scene revealing all the characters as they get dropped off for detention. And so we're seeing them all interact with their parents. You have the popular girl who seems spoiled, the geeky kid who's under pressure to always get high grades, the jock who might blow a scholarship if he doesn't smarten up, the sort of like weird alienated girl who rides in the back seat of her parents' car. And then when she tries to bend over and say something, the parent just zooms away without talking to her. And for the bad boy character, John Bender, no one drops him off. He's dressed in thick layers and sunglasses and he strides through the parking lot and he doesn't even stop for a car, which forces the driver to put on the brakes suddenly. When he comes into the library, he's like smacking around on the door handles, like knocks a phone off the hook, pockets a notepad. Without a word, he intimidates the geeky kid out of his seat, even though there are like a dozen empty seats he could have sat in. When the principal comes in and gives his little opening lecture, Bender is openly disrespectful. When Claire, the popular girl and his soon-to-be love interest, challenges him about his mocking attitude towards joiners, he traps her into revealing her prejudices that some school clubs are more legitimate than others. So he's breaking a lot of conventions here. In the parking lot, he showed a disregard for personal safety and also common courtesy. He doesn't buy into arbitrary social hierarchies the way the other students do. And he just flagrantly disrespects the school's ability as an institution to serve any kind of real justice. Han Solo, also another famous bad boy character. He's a little bit harder to compare since Star Wars is not directed as teens per se, and only romance ends up being part of it later. But from the get-go, we're set up to think of him as a rough outsider because we first meet him in a bar where random violence and intimidation is the norm. And from this first interaction with him, it's clear he's been involved in smuggling, he owes criminals money, he gets out of situations by lying and cheating, he doesn't have allegiances towards the rebels or the empire, He's just in it for himself. Johnny, Bender, Han are all obviously white guys. And I was trying to think of bad boy characters who are not white dudes. I think a lot of Angelina Jolie's early characters could be characterized as bad boys. In terms of comparable romantic heterosexual male leads who are not white, the main one I could think about was Derek from Save the Last Dance, which was Oh my God, such a popular film in 2001, as was the soundtrack, which if you escaped that, it's about a white suburban girl who moves to the south side of Chicago, falls in love with a black guy who helps her reach her dreams, live your dreams of getting into Juilliard. 
And the movie gets revisited a lot on TikTok, in particular mocking the Juilliard audition at the end, because in hindsight, the dance that Julia Stiles does is like not good. <laughs> if you're familiar with that film, you might think, wait, he's not a bad boy. And it's true that I think it's a way tighter rope to walk for a black male character at this time, particularly if his love interest is a white girl. Because a black boy flouting convention much quicker would seem threatening rather than sexy to a white mainstream audience. I just realized I said he has to walk a way tighter rope, but actually wouldn't a tighter rope be easier to walk if you're walking a tight rope? He has to toe the line a lot more carefully. He has to perform a balance. Okay. I, though, would say he, within our definition of bad boy, he still counts it was really interesting revisiting the first interaction he has with Sarah and also that we see of him. So it's Sarah's first day at her new school in Chicago Southside. And as a white kid, she's very much the minority here and she looks nervous and out of place. And her first class that we see her in is English. And the class has been reading In Cold Blood by Truman Capote. The teacher is trying to elicit from them an answer about like, why is this book significant? He assumes Sarah hasn't read it and offers to catch her up on it, but turns out Sarah has read it and she says, it's a nonfiction novel, the first of its kind. Capote mixed true events with things he couldn't know, so he made them up. There's a little bit of a impressed murmur, you know, the new girl knows her shit, until Derek speaks up and says, white folks back then felt safe. Capote scared them. He took hardcore crime out of the ghetto and dropped it in America's backyard. That's what makes the book special. Sarah says, yeah, that's a part of it. Derek says, that's all of it. Capote wasn't first. Richard Wright and James Baldwin did the same thing. Wasn't nobody trying to read them though. Lots of people read them, says Sarah. And then Derek claps back. Lots of people like who? You? Didn't think so. She is obviously embarrassed to be called out that and clearly has not read those books. So one of the conventions Derek is breaking is showing deference to white authority. And in this case, Sarah represents white authority. It's uh, in a similar way that Bender flouting social hierarchies involves embarrassing Claire as she's the popular girl. The Bender-Claire romance I find way more offensive because he basically throughout much of the film just degrades and mocks her through much of it. I don't think regardless of how things turn out that that is acceptable way to treat somebody. I think the Derek and Sarah interaction is a lot more interesting, but Johnny is a bit different because while we will see later on that he is dismissive at times towards Baby because of her privilege and naivete, his bad boyness and therefore attractiveness doesn't hinge on him embarrassing or straight up humiliating his female love interest. Johnny's initial target is Robbie, who we have little sympathy for, and for the whole scene, Baby gets to remain safely hidden. Uh, 
podcast time. Not a craft note this time, but I wanted to talk a little bit about promoting indie podcasts. There are so many podcasts now, it is extremely unlikely that you will get a sizable audience without any promotion. Some of the ways of doing this would be to get high profile guests, you guesting on high profile podcasts yourself, buying ads on other podcasts, doing lots of cross promotion on all of the various apps, all of which I have done very little of. No offense, of course, to my guests who I love, who I sought after because I wanted them on the show, but for being a podcast and a host that no one has heard of, I really would need buy-in from some folks with massive social media presences and listenerships to cause a real upswing in my listener numbers. Because in fact, the main slash possibly entire reason this podcast has any listeners beyond people connected to me personally is because I produced an episode of 99% Invisible, and in the credits I had them mention this podcast. That got me from like 40 listeners to, I don't know, it seems like there's about 100 people who download the new episodes right away, and then maybe 200 people who will eventually listen to them all. None of the individual episodes have broken 500 listens, though scene one and two are getting really close. The debriefs have the lowest listenership, but enough people have told me personally that they really like them and I enjoy doing them, so I'm probably going to keep doing them. I did try to buy an ad early on from the podcast Fansplaining, which is one of my favorite podcasts and really a must listen for anyone interested in internet fandom. Though I will warn you, it's tailored to people already familiar with internet fandom and slang and acronyms are used that I've had to look up on fan lore many a time. The first episode I listened to, they were talking about popular tropes and tags that are used in archive of our own which I did know about already as it is the biggest fan fiction website and one of the most visited websites in the entirety of the internet. So if you're one of those people that thinks fanfic is just some weird niche thing for freaks, you're the freak. And they were flying through these tropes like hurt comfort, dub con, and non con. And I was like, what the fuck are they talking about? Eventually hurt comfort was easy enough to figure out because I mean, it's a trope I think all of us have seen before but basically a character getting hurt and the other needs to comfort them or treat them. And it's a really great excuse to get two romantic leads physically close and intimate with each other. Dubcon, it turns out, is short for dubious consent and non-con for non-consensual. And if you're like, wait, what? That's just rape. And also what? It's popular in fanfic Dear sweet one, yes, it is both popular and yeah, I also would say it's rape, but wow, there is massively complicated discourse surrounding all of this kind of stuff in fandom, which is why I listen to fansplaining because it is so interesting. So I say that all because I tried to buy an ad on fansplaining and they just like didn't respond to my email. <laughs> so that was my efforts. I might buy an ad someday somewhere else but I am hesitant to spend more money on this podcast. I pay, so I pay 108 US a year to host the podcast on Podbean. And of course, like various little random things like books and the screenplay. And in this situation, like I already had all the equipment and software and training, but I paid an acquaintance of mine who's an experienced editor to take a listen and comment on the first episode. And that cost $650. Looking at that now, I can't 
actually kind of believe that I spent that money, but my expenses were a lot different than as I was living with my parents and on disability. But don't you dare for a second think that, wow, it must be nice to be on disability and get free money because in Ontario, at least, it's a pretty friggin' humiliating process and then it's not very much money. Also, something I'm doing that is not helping the promotion of this podcast is that I don't have a regular release schedule, which I know is annoying as a listener, but it's that or I don't end up finishing the series because it becomes like a guilt thing or the quality gets a lot worse because of course I'm doing this all for free. I know I could start a Patreon, but honestly, I don't want to run a Patreon. (laughs) And also I don't have enough listeners to support something like that. I'm pretty sure. Um, I might try some monetizing down the road, but it would have to be pretty low key. The important thing for me is that this podcast is enjoyable enough that I finish all the scenes in the movie. And also simply, I wanted to contribute a recap podcast to the listening ecosystem as a thanks for how much I relied on recap podcasts during the worst of my recovery. That is all for now. Scene five, we meet Neil. This is my grandson, Neil. And Lisa meets Robbie the Creep. Until next time.